Hello fellow time travellers, I'm Fraser Hines and I played Jamie McCrimmon in Doctor Who and you are listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club podcast. Enjoy your travels, or as Jamie might say, enjoy your travels. time travelers and welcome back to the Doctor Who Target Book Club, the podcast in which we undertake the sometimes circular task of discussing in story order all the Doctor Who novelizations. My name is Tony Whip, and those of you listening at home may notice every once in a while a bit more background noise than usual. That's because we're not recording in my living room this time. Oh no. This episode is being recorded live at the best Doctor Who themed convention in the, the Midwest, Chicago TARDIS. That's the entire convention right there. Today, we have an equal, well, not so circular three person discussion panel, including our so called expert who's been a Who fan since 1979. That would be me. There's also our novice fan who's seen little to none of the original series and has not previously read any of the books except for the ones we've done for this podcast. And this time around, it's the wise and witty Alison Fitch Seyfried. Hello, Alison. Hello. Finally, we have our returning celebrity guest panelist, an expert in his own right and character in at least two non-Target books, which means they don't count, the one, (laughs) the only, Trey Cortez. And by the way, happy 55th anniversary of Doctor Who. Indeed. Before we get to talking about the book, we'd like to tell you about our Patreon page, available at patreon.com forward slash dwtargetbc. Depending on the amount you give per month, you will receive a randomly chosen BBC book, not a Target book. Since we know you have so many of them by now, you've taken to using them as kindling for your Yuletide fires as a gift for supporting us, just to uh, say thank you for being willing to help us stay on the virtual air. Now, we were going to give our two extra copies of Claws of the Macra to any new Patreon who joined by tonight, but gosh, dog it to heck, you seem to prefer us for free. Thus, we're going to give these books away tonight at the end of the recording as part of our raffle after the recording ends tonight. Thank you for that, Allison. As usual, we'd like to thank the three people who actually do help us pay our bills. Bart Lammy, who's not here, unfortunately, this weekend. Toby Bengelsdorf, who's never here. And Rick Taylor, who is with us tonight. So thank you, Rick. Yeah! If it were not for him and for the other two gentlemen, we would not be here. And now, let's talk about that probably rarest of all Target novelizations due to a nasty fire that Terrence Dix, I think, actually set himself. (laughs) And that would be his novelization... Of the wheel in space. He said it in self-defense. He did indeed. So without further ado, here's some fast facts. Doctor Who, The Wheel in Space, adapted by Terrence Dix from the scripts by David Whitaker, that aired from 427.68 to 6.168, published by Target Books in March 1988. As of this recording in November of 2018, this title is currently out of print. It is available as an unabridged audiobook, 144 pages. Yes, we're finally at the end of the ill-named monster season. 
And once again, the Cybermen somehow count as the monsters. Go figure. They were still riding the height of their popularity by this point, and given that they started this season, the production team decided to have them end it as well. Uh, problem was, their co-creator Kip Hedler had an idea for the story, but of course was not a writer himself. And since Jerry Davis had stepped down as script editor and was not there to write up things as usual, they got David Whitaker, who had just contributed the one non-base under siege story for the whole season with Enemy of the World to write up the script, which quickly became yet another base under siege story. In fact, it may be the most confusing base under siege story ever written, but we'll get into that. What's not confusing is that it's the very first story to feature Zoe Harriet as played by one of the guests of this very convention, Wendy Padbury, who, oh my God, I was trying to move things into the uh, con uh, hotel today, all this stuff, and I almost ran into a woman and she's like, would you like some help? And it was Wendy Padbury. Oh, that's great. And I was like, oh very my good. God, you're so sweet. But no, you can't help me because you're too small. Um, <laughs> as Shannon Patrick Sullivan tells us on his Brief History of Time website, Peter Ling had already been commissioned to write a story for the following season, and he came up with a stand-in character named Zoe. So that's what they went with. But Padbury was not their first choice. Oh, no. They originally approached, get this, Pauline Collins, who had already turned them down the previous season when they wanted to make her character Samantha Briggs the new companion. And so they held auditions, and they almost cast someone whom Fraser Hines was seeing at the time, none other than actress Susan George, known well to those of us of a certain age for all those low-budget horror movies and TV shows she did in the 1970s. Of course, the, this did not happen, Unless Wendy Padbury is downstairs rather than Susan George, unless she's down there stalking Frasier somewhere. Could happen, you never know. Three quick things to note before we get into discussion. One of them having to do with this very book. Troughton went on vacation for the week of episode two, which is why the plot seems to come to a grinding halt before it even gets started while the doctor has a nap on the rocket. For another... Wendy Padbury had to turn down a part in a major motion picture to do the role of Zoe. She was going to appear in the prime of Miss Jean Brody with none other than future Dame Maggie Smith. So she gave up a lot to be here. And finally, this book may still be one of the rarest of all Doctor Who books because the warehouse in which the paperback copies were being stored burned to the ground. So there are only 23,000 copies in existence. And this wow. is mine. I'm not giving it away to any of you. Somehow they're all mysteriously wow. available for sale only directly from Terrence Dick. Yes, I noticed that too. I think that's how he's trying to get his nest egg for the... Uh... And no, and no, we will not be giving this away tonight. Maybe next year if we get some more Patreons. So I would like a volunteer to read the, uh, the back cover for us, which is the plot blurb. Who has a voice that is sonorous? That would be Rick. All right, Rick, I'm going to cue you because there's actually some music that will play in the background, so here we go. And when the TARDIS rematerializes inside a rocket, the Doctor and Jamie are alarmed by the presence of a hostile servo robot. They discover that the, robot, that the rocket is drifting in the orbit of a giant space station, the Wheel in Space. Once inside this magnificent spaceship, they are bewildered by its complexity and sheer size. The technicians and programmers are highly trained, but who are they working for? Suspecting the worst, the Doctor is still horrified to find the deadly Cybermen in control. What evil plan are they plotting? Who or what are the Cybermats? 
Can the doctor trust anyone on board to help him stop the wheel as it spins relentlessly through space? Excellent. Thank you, Rick. Rick also had a very good shirt. Yes. And the sad part is, by the time we get to the end of the story, we still have no answers to those questions. <laughs> <sighs> so, where do we start? God. Um... Well, first impressions, I guess. Allison? Well, I was carefully protected from that blurb by our host, Tony, That's who sent right. me a PDF with rectangles actually blocking that out. <laughs> so I didn't know it was going to be about the Cybermen until they actually showed up. Mm-hmm. It was a redacted text, so yes. were yes. you surprised? I was, I was. I, mm-hmm. I thought there, would be, there had to be something extraordinary to justify this censorship. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Tends to be the case. And Trey, you, of course, already knew... It was the Cybermen. Yeah. <laughs> you sound dejected. Why? Well, I mean, I mean, it's just an issue that I have with a lot of the books and even like the DVDs. Um, as fans, I, I, I'd love to be able to time travel and go back to when these stories were originally broadcast because I don't know what was presented in the publicity as a Cybermen story mm-hmm. in which they were actually surprised. I mean, sometimes like, you know, they'll say like, you know, something of the Daleks, and then surprise, the Daleks appear at the end of episode one. Right. But I think it would be very interesting to see, um, to experience these stories without any foreknowledge. Mm-hmm. Because then I think the Cybermen would be a big reveal. And that happens in later stories with them um, being a big reveal of the returning monsters. So I think, mm-hmm. yeah. It was a surprise to me. I mean, it was obviously going to be some, uh, some recurring villain because it was redacted. But... Yeah. But I didn't know specifically it was going to be them. It had to be an artificially made surprise, though. That's the thing. Because he doesn't actually name them as Cybermen until, I think, page 60. Yeah. It, it, so it, he's doing a very through. good job there of building suspense. The only problem is once you get there, you realize, oh, that was all padding. <laughs> there's there's a fair there. amount of padding to reach the 121-page length. Oh, there, yeah, yeah. Well, this Six time it's 100, length is what I would yeah, say. Yeah, it's That's, 144 pages. This is a... You know, it's a good story. It's a good example of how much of any flaws are due to Terrence Dix's novelization versus the flaws that are with the script itself. Yes. And I think this is a really great case study of that. I think so, too. I think the problems are mostly to do with David Whitaker's script than they are with uh, Dick's novelization because... The novelization is very much a Dick's novelization. We've read his stuff before, and there's nothing particularly bad. In fact, there's some really good stuff in it. And in fact, you'll be very surprised when I uh, play you Dalton's uh, response to it. He tries to make a lot of character moments, and my impression is that he's trying to create excitement and character moments where he doesn't have much to work with. Once again, having not seen the episodes. Um, But yes, he was seemingly giving it, maybe not his all, but his at least... 72%. 72%. Yeah, true, true. And there are some interesting characters in it. I mean, they do try for one of those international base crews again, but the problem is we've seen those since 10th Planet. Right. Mm-hmm. Get the Which is right, and this is right around when they were getting Star Trek, and you, this is this story is definitely Doctor Who trying to be Star Trek. Oh, yeah. With the Russian, and mm-hmm. the deliberately, you know, the Russian's good, and so, but she's got really corny lines about, you know, her nose and everything <laughs> like that. My nose never lies. And <laughs> so, yeah, so you definitely get a sense of... Um, I thought BBC didn't get Star Trek until 1969. Hmm, when was this? When was this aired? So 68, end of 68, right? Oh, you're right. 
Yeah, but, but the writers would probably would have been aware. They would have been aware of the, the, the concept. Yeah, um, because the I think didn't the Star Trek comic strip start right around that same time? Or that's possible. Yeah, so they might have been looking for that, and they they heard this buzz about this show coming from across the pond with an international crew. But yeah, it looks like it's trying to do that. Unfortunately, it's giving us the same tropes we've had before, which are, you know, crazy commander. Oh, God. Crazy well, yeah, I mean, commander. this is the one where I think this is where the base out under siege has really run out, run its course. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if this story came first in the moon base or, you know, some of the, or ice warriors came at this point, I think what the ice warriors would still be like, oh, my gosh, another base under siege. <laughs> Although I think that's a much better written novel. Oh, yeah. You know, so it's... Um, and if you remember when we were doing, I think it was a map or terror or something, yeah. I, was, I made the point where... I think, as much as I love Tron's performance, my judgment of Tron's heirs, I think it's the most weakly written scripts in that Doctor Who because they're very formulaic like this. Mm-hmm. And I think his performance and some of the directing for TV as opposed to theater that was emerging elevates the era. Mm-hmm. But the, the stories themselves don't do much for me. Yeah, they kind of... Oh, season has some interesting ones. Yeah, they spike a little bit next season, but then they fall into the rut again and we get things like... Oh, God. Now I'm blanking on the name of the damn thing. Um, six episodes in space. The space all the pirates. Bo- Thank you, the space pirates. Yeah. Yeah, yeah just a little dire. But I enjoyed the novel. Yeah, the novel exactly. was good. Exactly. I think the space pirates, that's the one, well, we're at tangent, but I think that might be the next enemy of the world. If, if it were to be recovered, that might oh. be a major reevaluation. Because everyone says the episode that exists is kind of like the crappy one, like the way enemy of the world yeah. was. And we don't see any visuals of later episodes, but I'm that's true. Myself. But that would be my prediction if those are okay. episodes ever get. All right, so we heard it here. In a year's time, <laughs> we should be able to see all of the space pirates, <laughs> for better or for worse. Both a promise and a threat. Both a prom- promise and a threat. Let me ask a serious question. Did anyone understand the damn plot? What were the Cybermen trying to do? Um, uh, they were trying to invade the wheel. <laughs> and there was okay. something about meteorites. Yeah. And there was a rocket that had bernalium rods. Yes. And then they sabotaged the laser because to try to plant, and I'm already getting lost. Yeah. Uh-huh. But it's something along those lines. It, like, why not just show up en masse and invade? Because they've got the superior firepower. Yeah. Once they've knocked out the laser, why do they have to go through all this? So it's, it's incredibly... For a logical race, uh-huh. not very logical. No, mm. no, that cyber planner is about as good as my, the planner on my phone. <laughs> yeah, not very good at all. I thought it wasn't just me. I thought, okay, so they're saying that they sabotaged the labor, uh, the laser, mm-hmm. so that replacement fuel would be needed for the laser, even though Jamie sabotaged the laser, because they knew he was going to, because they kind of put him up to it so they could send over a wooden crate. Metal with with yes. a fake bottom, yes. in which Cybermen are hidden like Kinder Egg. Where we toys. now know the Doctor has no depth perception at all. We look in the box; it's kind of shallow. Isn't it? Yeah. So, okay, so it wasn't just me thinking this is a little bit. Uh, no, and, and even when yeah. you see like the reconstruction. Yeah. Oh, that's something. Um, they've just uh, animated episode one. Oh, did they? Really? Um, for some sort of thing, and there's like I think you could almost pre. This may be up for an animation. This might be one of the next ones cause oh, because one of those about big screenings. Doing it. And oh, really? They they did. God, it was a truncated animated one, uh, yeah. episode one. 
but why this? But one? I think there even Amazon even had like the DVD up for pre order, oh. and then it's like. But now it's like one of those things that it's like it's not official, so it's kind of in limbo. But I think there's been talk about mm. this one. So hey, so I have no. a question. Yes. Will they ever animate the rest of it? I don't know, and, and that's that's the speculation mm. that's going on. Because I, I would love to see all the lost episodes animated. Well, well, especially the ones that don't make sense, like this one. Because <laughs> you get, in fact, the confusing thing about this plot is that it goes beyond the uh, Bernalium all the way back to the rocket being there. Because apparently the Cybermen took over the rocket, the, um, what's it called, the Silver Carrier, and sent it towards the wheel with just the servo robot on board, even though the servo ro- robot's a big red herring. And the crew's not there, but the Cybermen are somehow in the control deck, and they're waiting to for somebody to do something. I it's... But there, there was less running in corridors and mountain um, passages and other <laughs> other long tubes. Well, were, so that was a bit of a break. There were hundred so... percent less mountains in this book. Yeah. This is true. <laughs> it, it frustrates me because I think because this is, it is something that Whitaker could do well. There is a really good theme struggling to come out of our humans in the super utilitarian society where everything is just about your function and there's no real space for art and you know the whole logic enables you to be wrong with authority I mean right. there's a thing and, and there's some moments where it's always like I don't want to be emotionless I don't it's there is seems to be like a bit of social commentary trying to happen which I expected and, to play out in the final yes, 25% of the story and yes, never and, happened and you wish it did and that almost ties in with like the way this blurb I think it's a very weird blurb where it says that technicians and programmers are highly trained but who are they working for yeah. that would be an interesting plot point it would that is really never explored it's, it's, it's not a question it's a question that we don't know but it's not a question that I think most viewers are asking no but it's, it's interesting how that's and the text is not set up like a mystery but the blurb mm. made it seem like this would be an important point and it's, and it's really not. not and it's not um, for that matter the character of Zoe is kind of an anomaly as well because even though she's played off as being unemotional she's clearly not it's stated but it's not demonstrated that she's any more or less emotional than the other characters no. it seemed kind of a, a weird but beat see this is <laughs> where I wonder if the Star Trek thing is because you know, there's that difference between being emotionless and being simply stoic. Mm-hmm. And there, and I think Zoe's kind of conditioned to be stoic. You know, you're in space, you're having to make these tough decisions, da 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 These are just the facts. And then you look at, if we're looking at the Star Trek analog, you've got Mr. Spock, who plays a very similar role. And that's where a lot of the drama in Star Trek comes from. It's like mm-hmm. with McCoy and Spock and Kirk, you know, being at these opposing poles. And you kind of, is it a, it's, it's the American, isn't it? Yeah. Ryan. Ryan. Leo Ryan. Ryan. Um, oh, was he American? I thought he was Australian the whole time. I think he's meant to be. I think he's meant to be American. <laughs> oh, probably. And so, again, but with him saying, you're just an unthinking, you know, little computer, da, da, da. It's kind of an outburst out of nowhere. Yeah, yeah. and so I think that's like where this theme is trying to emerge. And I don't know if it was with the changing over script editors or it's just the lap into the season where they ran out of the budget. It's or a lot. Yeah, there's so it's a lot of that. It's a perfect storm of weirdness that. So, <laughs> is the story basically to introduce us to Zoe? Yes. 
Well, yeah. I thought it worked as that. Yeah, I mean, she's kind of tacked on, to be honest, but... She's developed more than everyone other than the Doctor. And this might be the first one we've read that actually passes the Bechdel test. Oh, where it's yeah. two named yeah. female characters who have a conversation with one another about something other than one of the male characters. They talk about whether or not Zoe is too cold and emotionless. I'm just going to be pedantic, yeah. but I don't know if you were, if you read The Crusaders... Did you read the Crusaders? I did not. I think that one might pass the battle. Mm, probably. Test. Yeah. Oh, and if we count Galaxy Four. Yeah. Then yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But you're right. They I mean, talk about wiping out yes all yeah. the humans. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Which but is I think, I think I mean, I, as far as like our key our core <laughs> yeah. characters, this is a really yes. good example. Probably not the only one, one, but certainly the first one in a while. Well, Gemma so. Corwin, I think, is an amazing character. Oh God, yeah. And she's she comes across really well on screen and in the mm. audio with the surviving episodes. Yeah, well, she, ordinarily, uh, it would be the character set up to be the foil. She would be the unfeeling professional mm-hmm. who played off the younger, hotter characters or something like that. But I love the scene where we're told that her office is also uh, her her quarters are also her office. They're decorated in pastels. Mm-hmm. She's invited this officer in, and I thought it was so funny that instead of thinking it's a seduction, he's like, you're here to analyze me, aren't you? <laughs> this is an appointment. And I thought that was a lovely oh, departure from the usual stereotypes. Well, she's <laughs> kind of weird, too, because she's not only the chief medical officer, she's also the chief psychological officer, and she's also second in command. Yes. So she's kind of Riker, Crusher, and Troy, Troy yes. all yes. in one. And it's like... Well, that's yeah. kind of badass in its own way. It was actually but. just such a relief that she wasn't the stick in the mud so for the story. Because I remember that character usually is. Yeah. Because like this is what I always do. Like for some reason, I have this weird photographic memory where I remember exactly where I was when I was reading these books for the first oh, time. Oh yeah, I forgot to ask you about this. So this one would have been fall of seventh grade by the time we got the paperback. And I remember like it was an indoor recess and it was raining, so I'm reading this, mm-hmm. and I got to the point. And I was really thinking, first of all, I was really excited about this book because um, by then, this was still one of the ones where, like, one of the remaining missing stories that had yet to be novelized, mm-hmm. where we hadn't even seen the isolated episodes. So, like, I knew nothing about how the story played out. Mm-hmm. I didn't know who any of the supporting characters were. I knew that it had Cybermen. I knew that it introduced Zoe. That was it. And I remember being really upset when she died. Oh, God, yeah. I That's was like, this really is the well. main character. They, the, she, this isn't the character who dies. Mm-hmm. This is... That seemed really, really, and I remember being really upset and kind of bummed out reading it. And the other thing that I remember is I made a correction. Uh-huh. And so if you look at this, um, on page 129, the invasion, it's when the cyber planner is going through all the crew. And it says, the cyber planner sat staring straight ahead, concentrating on the images that appeared in conjunction with Valance's voice. Tanya Lernoff, astrologer. Second class, <laughs> a young fair-haired. Not even female. a good one. And I so I even crossed it out, and I wrote astronomer, you know, in the thing, which I probably corrupted the value of the book just by doing that. That's about the so, same. Like, how did that get through? That's that like was, that's worth eighty dollars. I'm not yeah, even stocked it down to seventy. And the other thing about it is, this doesn't look like the wheel at all. No. And I remember the time that in the 1980s, the pogo ball. Mm-hmm had just been mm. invented. And the, if this is not yes. a Pogo Ball spaceship, yes. I don't know what it <laughs> is. And so like, I remember my friend John and we were like, it's a Pogo Ball. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's certainly not a wheel. And it's so, not drifting through space endlessly no, the way the no. uh, end so, of the book says. But since yeah, I wasn't allowed I to see the cover on the PDF, I visualized it as much more interesting and better engineered. Yeah, it's not. Can, can I have a question? Uh, sure. I, I would like to uh, purchase this book possibly and. How do I purchase it? Probably eBay, quite frankly. Mm-hmm. And so and how much be- would it cost? 
It's, it's steep. Because it's one of those rare books because that fire that um, I've seen it going for like $80, $100 and things oh like that. God. But I've also seen people like stories anecdotally where people will just find it at a half price books where the people don't realize and it's like for two bucks. Anyway. Anyway, so well, let's get back wheel to in space. Wheel in space. Pogo balls. Pogo balls. Yeah. And oh, also the fact that you can really tell it's David Whitaker's script, can't you? Oh my God. The food machine, the fluid links, Mercury, all that's back. I kind of missed it. Well, it's kind of like... Do you like the Mercury? I don't remember this. Oh, that's right, because you didn't read the Daleks. It's one of those... Um, The very first book. Situations where you feel like, you know, they brought him back, and he has no idea of how the program's changed. And then (laughs) you just... It's kind of like the old man who's like, we're still making it this way, kids, even though, like, you know, (laughs) and you just can't, so... Yeah, the science is all over the place, especially with the moonwalks, which are literally... Well, spacewalks, which are literally spacewalks. And again, there's something... There's, again, that theme that seems to be emerging, because of that whole thing, because, again, it's Leo Ryan, and it's very Dr. McCoy-ish. Yes. Where he bitches out the doctor, (laughs) saying that he risked Jamie and... Um, Zoe's life by crossing right. the mirrors. And the doctor basically goes through this utilitarian philosophy of, I risk the few to save the many. Yes. Which yeah. is a very common theme in Star Trek, which mm-hmm. is, um, you know, something that you would expect <clears throat> Spock, you know, to make that logical choice, that tough call. And McCoy saying, you just, I mean, that seems to be very much, and so, yeah, I mean, I take your point that the British, didn't, you know, might want to seen it, but there's so many... This is the most Trek-ish, I think, of the 60s They stories. might have had the Blish novels. Who knows? I mean, yeah, right. They might have been, like, printed matter that they were looking at. Well, in-universe, they would call it in Star Trek Parallel Evolution. Yeah. <laughs> I have a feeling that's what happened. Because Whitaker was brilliant in his own way. It's just, at this point... He is kind of running out of some well, of his we're aware ideas. of what was going on in American TV, because you had Terry Nation trying to sell the Daleks in America with, like, that show, and that didn't go anywhere. But Exactly, exactly. So they're, they're, the typo I wanted to cross out was the Cybermats made a, the Cybermats made a sudden dart forward as to attack, but the move brought them within range of the sound from the dangling wall mic. Not M-I-C as in microphone, but M-I-K-E. So I visualize it's like an acrobat. The wall might be performing. He's dangling. <laughs> They've defeated him. It's terrible. There, so. there are a few little um, howlers in the uh, in the pros come to think of it. And I, I think Dix did it on purpose a few times. Um, where is that one? There was that line about her nose, obviously. Which he retained, which amazes me. He's he's really into his ellipses in this one as well. Oh my god! His dramatic ellipses of yes. suspense. Yes. You know, there's there's a lot of those. So many. Sealed to the floor was the regularly shaped lump of what seemed to be solid plastic. You have to inject something into the story to make it work. I mean, obviously, if you don't know the Cybermen are coming, there's going to be a little bit of it. But I do have to wonder just about the mechanics because you've got. The spacewalk that you accomplish by using spurts out of your oxygen tank? Mm. Oh, yeah, that doesn't seem wise. Yeah, that doesn't seem <laughs> wise at all. And how close are these things to each other? Are they so close that you can just kind of traipse across if you want to go over and get the time vector generator or whatever the MacGuffin is on this particular story? He does like his MacGuffins as well. Yeah, I, and I, I, I'm Because you interviewed Nigel Robinson. Yes. Says, it would have been interesting to know, like, how the sequence of stories yet to be novelized was determined. Like, why was the smugglers, you know, one of the last ones? Why was the wheel in space? And it's not always to do with rights, because they had done all the other Cybermen and Whitaker stuff. Right. 
But I wonder, because the wheel in space, we, we have the two, because they would have had the two surviving episodes, but especially like episode one and some of the others, it's a very visually told story. Oh, yes. And so even then, when Terrence was novelizing this, he would have had the scripts, and he would have maybe had the audio, but not even that, because that might have been, those audio things were recovered by Graham Strong later. Right. So he might have just been going purely by the scripts and the surviving episodes, mm-hmm. and that's really hard to visualize. Oh, that is it ever. So I wonder if that was, I think that's one of the problems here, is like how much of the storytelling, particularly in the first episode, mm-hmm. and how many of these issues that we're having, if they were recovered, we could see maybe something happening on screen where the director is like doing something that makes it more convincing or more, it makes a little bit more sense. I mean, Possibly. You can I mean, see the writer working hard I, to describe to you the logistics of the situation. Right. You could almost kind of see him sweating to make it seem fluid, but you have to actually go back and reread. Now, who did what and the where, and then they went where? But mm-hmm. Some of these have been very fluid in laying out the scene. I have a question about, you mentioned uh, the, the surviving episodes. If I remember right, wasn't uh, the one episode was there for a while, and the other episode came later. Yes. They found it later, so was... When was this written? Was the did they have the two episodes, or did they just have the one? He would have been writing it in '87. The they should have had the two by then. Yeah, uh, yeah. they had the two. I because I, I, I remember that episode. Uh, they found that episode, you know, well after I started getting into Doctor Who in the '80s, sometime. And March 1988. This was printed. Uh, when was that episode? When was the other episode found? I'm um, Googling that. Yeah, please do, because I honestly don't remember, but I, I, remember, I think it would have been after. Was episode six the only one that they had? Right. It was either three time. or six. I can't remember which one was which, but yeah. I think it was six, because yeah. I, I, I have not seen the other episode. I've seen the one that they originally had. The, right, the, the, because I, six, I have not seen the other one. Six they have the original video of, right? They yeah. don't have the teller recording, which is why it always looks so sharp compared to everything else. Okay. Yeah, I believe that's the case. Yeah, that that might be a lot of it, or it could just be a really just terrible, 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 terrible story. (laughs) You felt more strongly. I really did feel terribly about it. But once again, I think think it once again suffers though from being late in a season that has had many stories like this, and you might not feel quite so negatively about it if it had been the third one instead of the twelfth. That's true. That's true. I think I probably would have appreciated it a lot more had it not been at the end of the monster season, which now I've decided, I remember how we were trying to um, define what a monster is? And Dalton thinks almost none of them are monsters. But you'll notice that Dalton thinks that almost none of them are monsters, and Dalton is not here. So perhaps Dalton is a monster, the real monster. Is <laughs> That's what it looks like. Oh, okay. So I was right. Six was the one that was recovered, but it was recovered. In so Dix would have had those two. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Um, and would they have had stills, and would they know what the prop looked like, like what the space, oh, yeah. space station was designed? Yeah, because they would have had the telesnaps. So that would have been the case. Um, it, I'm not sure that Dix would have had Thanks. access to the telesnaps, would he? No, because those were found in the 90s. Oh, that's right. So. That's right. So he didn't have a visual record of it except for those two episodes and for the scripts. Yeah, you do. Such a nerd. You really do. Speaking of uh, Terrence Dixon Cyberman, it's interesting to note, and I put this in my uh, fun fact, because Jerry Davis wrote most of the Cyberman books and Ian Martyr will write the next one. This is only the third time Dix has novelized a story with Cybermen in it. Does anyone know the other two times? Five Doctors. Five Doctors would be Revenge one. Revenge of the Cybermen. And Revenge of the Cybermen. Exactly right. Those I are the earned only my three. spot in the room. <laughs> yes, yes, you have. Thank Welcome you. Ian Martin novelized. Invasion um, and Earthshock. 
Yeah, yeah but don't say that too loudly because somebody on oh, the right. stay on the okay, invasion A because well that's all right. We'll we'll, we'll surprise Dalton with it. <laughs> yes. yes, if Allison remembers the title, then I won't recall. You won't recall. That's a good thing. It's already gone. Do meteor storms get kicked off because of supernovae and other galaxies? It seemed rather still... suspicious a circumstance, kind yeah. of like the warehouse fire. <laughs> Maybe Dix did all of it. Maybe he's the real villain behind the entire Maybe story. Maybe this whole story is the warehouse fire. Um, I do notice that Dix makes a few really odd changes that I'm not very happy about, particularly in Chapter 9. Uh, ostensibly to make Jamie look less of an idiot because Jamie really is carrying the idiot ball in the televised version, not so much on the page. In fact, I meant to ask you, Allison, what you thought of Jamie this time He around. seemed less of an idiot than he's usually written as in a way that I thought was pleasant. Well, because some sometimes the, the companions in these novels are written as such imbeciles you wonder why they're kept around. Right. Because they just are a danger to themselves. So I actually thought he was given some clever things to do here, even when he's kind of flying by the seat of his pants. Yeah, especially with the time vector gauge or whatever it is. Well, and that he recognizes a laser as a gun, even though he's never seen a weapon like that before. Mm-hmm. He understands when something is being pointed at him with menace. I like it when the companions have an op- have an opportunity to be smart with the experience that they do have, That's even true. though they're in out of their depth. Though so it's interesting that, that he's never encountered artificial gravity before. I can't think of an instance he where has, he has. He have. just didn't, doesn't know it, I thought. Yeah, maybe that's it. He just moon doesn't base, question it. Yeah. The moon base, yeah. But he was like freaking about the Phantom Piper the whole oh, time. Oh, that's before. right. He was he was feverish <laughs> at the time. But the changes that Dix makes to the book in Chapter 9, they lose a very nice joke in the process. Because the doctor says, I know how we'll look through this lump. The x-ray machine. And Zoe, of course, says, the x-ray machine, oh, why didn't I think of that? And then she looks at Jamie and says, it's, you know, thank Well, God. at least you didn't think of it. Then I'd that be really been awful. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we can find out. How? With the x-ray machine. Oh, of course. Why didn't I think of that? Why, why didn't you? Well, all I had to go on was the fact that hyperoxide is unbreakable. Why? No. Just didn't think of x-rays. Simple common sense works wonders sometimes, Zoe. Well, at least you didn't think of x-rays. That would have been awful. (laughs) Yeah, that scene is gone, unfortunately. I do think, with the introduction of Zoe, and it'll be interesting to see how Alison and Dalton respond to to the next batch of stories, I think as a foil compared to Jamie, compared to Victoria, Mm -hmm. I think it's like with Victoria, you have these two historical companions who are kind of ignorant of how things work. Whereas here, you've got Zoe, the expert in some areas, mm-hmm. and having to explain things to Jamie, but then there'll be some more common sense things yes. that Jamie has to explain to Zoe. Mm-hmm. And I think, and I think just on screen and everything, I, I like the, dyna- the, the, the Dr. Jamie-Zoe dynamic a lot more so than the Dr. Jamie-Victoria dynamic. I like the idea of it, but Victoria was supposed to also be scientifically curious, if not very well informed, and then that rarely actually bore out in the stories as novelized. Yes, they... Like, she should be intensely curious, even if she doesn't have accumulated knowledge. They do sometimes, like, Zoe will still become, like, the stereotypical companion who's, like, screams and gets caught, but she never loses her intelligence, and her intelligence and ability to figure things out is always going to be part of her character, and that's something I really, really like about her character. Um, I I named my dog Zoe. She seems like, well, I I just hope she doesn't turn out to be Steve, where I was excited about having an astronaut who will try to figure out how the TARDIS works and will try to understand it, and then he just kind of sits around and sort of 
you know, belches slightly. I think, so I'm, I'm hoping she turns out to be that I kind think, of character, I think better, I but think, I feel burned by Steve the Rock. I think, so. I think I say, when did it's Steve going to be better than Steven, but it might not be quite where you want it to be. Fair enough. I, th- I think so. It's, it's better. But they, she, I think she's a consistent character. Um, I'm, I'm definitely interested in the character having seen only this and not having met her in the hotel like uh, like, uh, like Tony did, did early today. Yes, but having help. no exposure to the character other than this since, uh, for those of you who are here who have not listened to the podcast before, my role is to be ignorantly surprised <laughs> by <laughs> the novel. Well. She's by far the most interesting character in the novelization. You want to learn more about her. She's the most developed She's what I like about her, and I think a lot of this is down to Wendy, actually, when you're watching her on TV. Oh, yes. But there's a mischievous quality about her. Mm-hmm. There's always a little bit of a twinkle in her eye. Which is there's... why I didn't understand the denouncement that she was an emotionless person. Right, right. It seemed a bit odd. If I'm not mistaken, isn't she supposed to be like 13, the character? She's, she's supposed, supposed to be very, very young. She's supposed to be very young. I'm not sure I would know that I, for I her, vaguely but... remember 13, but... Hmm. I'd have to look that up yeah, somewhere. Yeah, Wendy February doesn't, you know, she's small, so she can look 13, but she's not really cool. Right. Like she could have been maybe 17 or 18. Yeah, they, the they, they, they never say so in the... I can't remember 13, but I might be They never say so in the That might have been another concept. Mm-hmm. I mean, that could very well be. I'm, I'm sure somebody at home will tell <laughs> us, maybe, because they'll be able to Wikipedia it and tell us after the fact when uh, all our corrections come in. Yeah. Yeah. I have to admit, I feel bad for poor Chang. Why don't they just take... I don't get the Cybermen. In fact, the Doctor has a line later that says, I, I can't understand them. I can't understand them in this either because they take over some characters, they kill others, and there seems to be no rhyme or reason or logic to the whole thing. But remember, I actually liked in the last novel that the monster was this organic thing that had desires that were not easily understandable. It's just usual desire for conquest no. or food or something like that. So you didn't know what the creature was going to do and so that actually did add a sort of menace because all these engineers didn't know what to expect next from it yeah. here they didn't know just because the cybermen didn't seem very bright no they're or not very organized they have a very elaborate plan but it's challenging to understand how it could possibly work yeah they've been programmed with the wrong language or something or they've gotten a, a corrupt copy of their software which could also be menacing they're very powerful they're out of control but they have a plan it's just not very good yeah there's a chapter title these chapter titles are too funny one of them is into danger which makes me think of yeah i'm into danger what are you into and and the whole poison in the air another great title reminds me of that 70s song about what people are into the um <laughs> please the do. whole bit we're like and i love it and i'm glad that this is in the surviving episode where jamie's like i have to take you over my knee and slap you and she's like and she's like oh this will be fun i shall learn so much from you <laughs> i think there are two what, different scenes but yeah, yeah. It's, it's really those that's well, fun talking about how old is she there is this weird recurring uncomfortable thing with the companions where i'm reading the novel saying all right is she 27 
Is she like 12? <laughs> That's the thing with Victoria as well. Like, okay, oh, yeah. is she like 18 or 20? Wait a minute, she's being adopted at the end? I think that happens so, a lot with characters that are meant to be young but are written by adult authors. So I mean, Zoe is 13. That's a super creepy scene. A, a mental yeah. connection. But she's 25. It's a flirtation. She's, she's you know, 16, uh, uh, according to... And I, I, I wonder if this okay, is... Okay, so is she's 16. It's still, still kind of weird. Still recruiting him young at Space Station. This so. is a sci-fi yeah. trope of like the Very genius child. Very accelerated science program. And yeah. in the science fiction course yeah. that I'm teaching at the high school, um, some of the students right now are reading Ender's Game. Oh, yeah. And one of the things that whenever I teach Ender's Game... The criticism a lot of the kids have, and I found myself doing this as a reader whenever I'm rereading it, is where the author repeatedly tells us that Ender is like, what, six or seven? But you're always mentally imagining like a 14-year-old or a 15-year-old. Uh-huh. Exactly. And so even though we have these like sophisticated children who are meant to be at this adult level, you know, because that's just so foreign to how we view children... Mm-hmm. That I think readers and viewers will just imagine, like, they'll just make the, the, the character older than what is said. And, like, going back to um, his question, I, I looked it up and it was like, she was supposed to be 15. 15. But it's never officially stated. Right. But I think, yeah, you don't buy it as 15 years old because she, the character doesn't look 15, the character doesn't speak like a 15-year-old. Mm. And so you have all these things, and that might be the point, but they don't really commit to it. Mm. And I think, and so... You know, so I, I thought of Ender's Game immediately, but I think that you see that a lot in science fiction where you've got this sort of genius child who's supposed to be wise beyond their years, but it just doesn't, it doesn't convince. And if it's in print and we don't have the visual, you're just going to default to this older person. True, true. I don't know if this is true at the time, but it's common to cast someone who's in their early 20s as a teenager. Well, also have there's that, that too, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which would have been the case here as well. Yeah, yeah because if, if she was being cast in the prime of Miss Jean Brody... That's schoolgirls. That's mm. definitely going to be sixteen and younger. Yeah, and she's and, and the adjective that's always used to describe her is elfin. Elfin, you know. But she she's very petite. She she looks young. She really does. Even now, so. it's in, it's insane how young she looks. I should be that lucky when I'm pushing. One hundred and seventy. Not one hundred seventy, <laughs> but at least seventy for sure. Um, what else? Jarvis Bennett. Oh God. Okay, speaking of crazy people. Yes? Why, what is it with the base commanders always losing their shit? No, Because they, I think at this point the trope of the overstressed station commander, and I think in this one it's really, it's not really explained, because you, at, with the other stories I can kind of see like, okay, Hobson, Robson, and their stories, you can understand why they work. Clint is, in Ice Warriors is um, too singularly focused, but he's, he is competent. Right. This guy, how did he get this job when you've got, like, Jenna Corwin, <laughs> who is obviously much more competent and level-headed? Like, there's nothing there to explain why he was in charge in the first place. You know, in Fury no. from the Deep, Hobson begins to... Or is it Robson? Because one's a moon base and one's in Fury, and I always get it mixed yes. up. Yes. But... You, you know, the, you, there's some explanation. It's like, okay, this is a very competent leader who has just been faced with circumstances beyond his control. Right. But you never get this from Jarvis. It's, mm-hmm. And so I'm constantly thinking, why is this guy in charge? What put him in charge? I wonder you know, that too. Did yeah. his uncle, you know, get him a pass like <laughs> Joe Grant did? You know, I mean, it's... It's a sort of mid-century British writer working out having had a lifetime authority like figures of this in their own lives. The incompetent schoolmaster is too authoritarian, you know, the father, etc. I think mm-hmm. it's sort of them working out on the page, perhaps, 
lot of people like there's something to that yeah that there's that whole tradition of uh promoting somebody to the heights of their incompetence when you're also dealing with i mean if we look at when this was originally written in the late 60s you're getting this sort of counterculture increasingly suspicion of authority right and establishment Mm-hmm. And the establishment increasingly portrayed as incompetent because Doctor Who, even though people are saying, "Oh, the Jodie Whittaker season's too PC," you know, <sighs> it's always had that sort of, you know, even if it messes it up and does and makes us cringe from our standards, <laughs> right. it was always in its own way very forward thinking. Well, and and going off on that, the story again, like there's so many potential themes bubbling under where, what makes for a good leader, and this sort of like because all those strips of like if you think about like military leadership where having to make the tough decisions, when do you make the sacrifices and so forth, all those are present in this book, but we don't, it's never really fully developed like what it could be. And you almost wish that, again, I always go back on these novelizations, is the job of the novelization to reproduce what we saw on screen or is it to improve upon it? Right. And you feel like a redone wheel in space would really take more exploring these themes and ramp them up because Mm -hmm. I think there, I think there is, and that would be very Whitaker. Right. With what we've seen in him earlier with like, you know, the two Dalek stories and everything else. Oh yeah, else. absolutely. But I would say that uh, Dix actually does improve it, but very, 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 very briefly. <laughs> because what he does is he adds a little bit to that tense conversation that the Cybermen have with the Doctor and that, that last scene that they have together. And it tries to give an explanation of what they're trying to do. And I'm trying to find that in my notes very quickly before uh, something else comes up. He says something about them needing the wheel in order to get some guidance to get to Earth. It's like, what? Why? What? They've misplaced it. I guess they have this place. Do they have some? Since last time they pulled up and parallel parked their own planet next to it, they just lost. <laughs> they have. They forgot where they parked Bondas exactly. Yeah, because the, I just don't get this. This is what I mapped out as the the plot. The Cybermen caused the meteor storm to force the wheel to use the laser, which they planned to sabotage so the crew would have to come to the rocket to get the Bernalium to repair the laser which they could then use against the meteor shower they themselves caused, but now they're on board to get the mineral wealth of Earth, which is ages away? Yeah, there's, it doesn't seem efficient. No. What did you... I, just kind of going... Um, Allison, what did you think of the Cybermats in this one? Yes. I, I expected more to come of them. It seemed to be a big reveal. Oh, they're Cybermats! Oh, well, a little lizard. Um, so I expected them to be more menacing and to cause more mischief and to be able to effectively sabotage or hijack the wheel in a way they didn't really seem to. Yeah. You just, I think it's interesting because you just used the word lizard. Mm-hmm. I guess I visualized you... them as a sort of armor-plated lizard, sort of. In really? Metal Fascinating. Sections. You, you read two of the Cybermen with us, though, didn't you? I remembered reading about Cybermats before. I did not remember what they looked like, so ah. I just filled in something, perhaps purely invented out of nothing. Okay, because that sounds so. a lot more terrifying than what we actually get. That's <laughs> consistently my experience, that when I haven't seen the episode yet, what I imagine has much higher production values. But it was available space. in the 60s. That's a Cybermats. Oh, yeah. I, I, well, the, the plates, yes. The overlapping plates, yes. They look like dustbusters from the I 80s. expected more to, more to come. <laughs> we used to call them, our yes. dustbuster the Cybermat. Did you, you know? really? That was... 
That's hilarious. There's one. There's one. A remote control one down in the lobby. Is there really? Oh god! Uh, yeah, by the uh, Dalek. Alley. Do we know which era cybermatic? It was the one with the the googly eyes and the little like. Oh, No, this one's a little bit different. I, I try, find it hard to mentally divorce the term okay, yeah, yeah, from automat, and I think of them like dispensing coffee and pie. Those are more iconic Like having compartments. I know it's incorrect. It's like a maggot or something. Yeah, that's not nearly as good. Oh, that's funny. The one with the teeth in Matt Smith. Yeah, I do like that. The one that's actually is a rat that's been cyber-converted. Oh, and, 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 they, and in some of the audios, they say that, that it's babies who've been, that cybernets oh. used to be babies. Do they oh, wow. really? Yes. That's significantly that's scarier. That, yeah. is, that oh. is, it's terrible. That's disturbing. like dead and space. Like one of type. like the that's stories. That's like the Sockle kind of. Yeah. yeah. Oh, it's, God. And, and, and one of them, like an illegal alien, like when they were doing the 90s in the books and like oh, they yeah. just could be as violent as possible mm-hmm. like the cybermat is just like vicious and it's like dismembering people oh, and remember all that, that and so then you kind of look at these and you're like oh <laughs> yeah they're kind of bland yeah. so bland in fact that Bill finds it says oh where did you come from oh I'm not going to tell anyone about you because they'd never believe me except you could probably show it to them <laughs> that is one oh I hate that so oh much my when, God. when characters don't share important information like that mm-hmm. and just for the sake of the plot and yes. yeah Bill Duggan he's like I, yeah he's another character whose motivation stuff makes sense no no one no one stops good grief is that what the, what the cybermats are they used to be baby Jesus and now there, <laughs> there's some there's some horror yeah well, as, <laughs> that's the holiday episode well speaking of horrors <laughs> Dix tells us in chapter 16 effective penetration should be immediate yeah that's what they all say honey there's a lot of action with that golden wand also yes oh and Allison does not know <coughs> so is it a son- the sonic screwdriver or no. is it something different because they call it's it something, something different. different it's something yes. different it's the time vector something generator generator that's it and it what it does I guess is makes the interior of the TARDIS mm-hmm. the same size as the exterior but what's the, why have that why because it's David Whitaker and David well, Whitaker does stupid things. Why did like they that. have? It was in this episode. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's the MacGuffin. It's the thing and that Jamie uses Jamie to signal uses the to wheel. Jamie uses to send Morse code, which he apparently. And then they hook it up to the. If you're not careful, make the interior of the TARDIS match the exterior. Something like that. Wow. Well, yeah. But why even have that as a design feature? Isn't that the medley? Isn't that the medley monk episode? It might be. That was the dimensional stable. That's the same thing. Is that the same thing? No, because the dimensional stable, well, intergeneration, I think in William Space, just makes it look like an ordinary police box. Yes. Whereas in the time meddler, it just shrunk everything and so it would fit. And then Eccleston one time opened up the TARDIS, and of course, it was just a police box. Yeah, yeah. That was a little bit like the So maybe it's the. That's more like the same thing, right? Yeah. As we have here. Um, Allison does not know about the uh, air supply misreading. Oh, no. this is one of the best things ever. It really is. Now, if you listen carefully, Troughton actually is saying a sectional air supply. Okay. You all die if you don't turn off, but it comes out as you all die if you do not turn off the sexual air supply. But anyway, we're all going to be killed shortly unless you switch over to sectional air supply. What are you talking about? The Cybermen are going to poison the air. Yeah. Why would you ever turn off the sexual air? <laughs> I don't know, but um, I heard so it makes things more interesting. My friends, <laughs> my friends Chris and Jeff, who was here earlier. And if it left. doesn't, you're not around to tell people it wasn't. So we yes. would we would callers at the American karaoke uh, previous conventions 
we would call ourselves because we were singing a group song. We would call ourselves sexual. Or <laughs> and Chris actually made me the same guy who did the Barbara Wright shirt. <laughs> made me this mug that has a picture of Zoe, kind of like in a in a disco attire, with this like logo called Sexual Air Supply, like it's an album, and it's so it's become legendary. Flop, Let me see if know. I can actually play the clip because it wasn't working earlier. But if you actually look for Sexual Air, I've got it. I like how Google predicted sexual yes, yes. I know what you're after. Oh, it's not working for me either. Okay, well, never mind. <laughs> there it is. I, this is another one where it's challenging to write this doctor as anything but a ghost, and I didn't think Dix managed to pull that off here. Really? I thought okay, the doctor... So well, it was actually very off. entertaining that he spent um, most of the first third of the book as a... Passed out Victorian lady, <laughs> sort, of, sort of swooning oh, all over the place. Yeah, and I actually was going to ask you: so Was this another one where he's on vacation for, yes. for a lot of the filming or something? He's on vacation for season episode it's, two. It's another one where you don't get. It seems like much of a sense of the personality and presence of this doctor no. because you don't have the actor, and it's and he is apparently hard to write. That is true. And so Jamie and Zoe have to carry that yeah. instead. And Gemma. When he's well. also removed from the narrative. Or- for big portions of the time. Yeah, and I think that's the biggest problem there. So, anything else that we want to say about it before we do the Goodreads portion? Actually, one thing I'd like for you guys to address, if it's okay. Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah, You're our patron. Um, well, <laughs> I was a little bit frustrated in watching the story that um, there was not a confrontation between the Doctor and the Cybermen until the very last part, if I recall correctly. Yeah. What yeah. did you guys think in reading the novel about the fact that the doctor it's, doesn't actually confront the cyberman well, until sort of the end of the of the story. Yeah, it's it's not there. I mean, you've got the bit where they're like, "There's like you know our ways," right. and it's <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's 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 stupid. Yeah. I think it's, it's the story. It's missing tension. Oh yeah. Not, yeah. Yes. That, there's but, no. What, what are the stakes? But what's interesting is a lot of the contemporary reaction when it was broadcast said that this one was a very terrifying, tension-filled story. And I would say one of the things that really elevates the story when you watch it is the soundscape by Brian Hodgson. Mm, I agree. That's true. You've got that wah 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 wah. You know, each time like the cyberpunk come out, and like when I like, so I, I direct high school plays, and I did a sci-fi cyberpunk version of Macbeth, and like the android, and we had like yeah, of course. And so like I had triplets in it, and they played the three assassins. I made them like replicants, and each time, and so like when they killed Banquo, they like put their hand on him and like zapped him. So when the ghost, he had like this big handprint on his face, but like. But when you were trying create, uh, when I was working with a sound person, mm-hmm. I let her kind of design some of the sound. But whenever those Android replicants came, I used that mm-hmm. sound as that wah 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 oh, wah wah, and it was like really yeah. spooky looking on stage. Oh, bad. And that and that sort of like, yes. like is when they're doing the spacewalk. Mm-hmm. It's the mute, the, the sound effects. It's not even like really music. But I think because like there there were reports that like kids were afraid of this story and they were frightened. And if you listen to the soundtrack. The sound effects are very unnerving. Yeah, the, the surround sound. Yeah, and that's what kind of, and that, of course, you don't get that in these. Can I can I return to sectional air supply? Yes, sure. okay. please. So, uh, this is from. Uh, it took me a little while to find it. It's from uh, Wiki, the Wiki Artist Wiki, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, Patrick Troughton makes one of the series' all-time best line fluffs in episode <laughs> six, when the Doctor earnestly entreats. We're all going to be killed shortly unless you switch over to the sexual air supply. <laughs> he meant to say sectional air supply. 
Yeah, exactly. I couldn't play the clip, unfortunately, because of the uh, sound problem. But if you listen closely, he is saying sectional. It just, it's that kind oh. of lispy quality that Troughton has. It's interesting, because they thought he really said... Yeah, it's not. Okay, it, but it does sound like it. That's the, that's the key thing. Yeah. I did locate the 2010 song based on that line. Oh, God, did you really? The Red Pills on oh. Amazon. What? And Sexual Air Supply? Sexual yeah. Air Supply. <laughs> the Red Pills is, is the band, and Sexual Air Supply is the name of the song, based on... Specifically on the doctor. Oh, fantastic! That's amazing. Well, don't oh. don't play it because we'll get copyright strike for sure. But I was looking at sexual air supply and that took me to the news of the day, which somehow took me to the Metro. This is a headline. This is a headline. The International Space Station is infested with mysterious and potentially dangerous space bugs. Oh boy. So, scientists have discovered a thriving <laughs> ecosystem of infectious organisms aboard the International Space Station. Where's it's that? the wheel in space. Yes. It's coming true. It's well, everything will work out fine, then. Like, there won't be... It's because Bill dug a... Are there Bernalian rods, you know, Bernalian rods anywhere that we need to be on the lookout for? Yeah. Don't worry, their plan is so overcomplicated. It'll well, never work out. I will say this before we go to Goodreads. I do like the way this book ends because it's unusual for um, somebody to put in the novelization something that was quite obviously meant to be a lead into a repeat for a season. Hmm. Because that was the lead into them doing a rerun of Even with the Daleks to get them over the summer break. Hmm. That's why he shows her the Daleks. He's showing Zoe what she's up against. And he novelizes that moment and it's really kind of lovely. So he's promising her there will be more interesting stories for her to participate in coming up next. Yes, well, he, yeah, you, well, you promise one thing and then you do something in the other. Yeah. All right, as we always do, let's go to goodreads.com for online reviews of the book written by other readers and follow up with our own ratings. By the way, if you're listening to this podcast and you want to have your review featured when we get to an upcoming book, simply read the book. Write a post in our discussion group on Goodreads before the posted deadline so that we have a chance to see it and we may actually read it aloud out here. The average rating for this story out of five stars is 3.49, which sounds just about right, actually. Steve, whoever Steve is, gives it three stars and says, There were many base undersea stories in the Trouton era, at least two involving the Cybermen. They come in for a lot of stick for being lazy and trope-ridden. The Doctor and Jamie arrive at the base in the midst of a series of unexplained deaths and are at first blamed for everything. The base has a multicultural crew and an angry commander, Caps. The monsters will have a hugely impractical plan. Boy, howdy. (laughs) Nobody believes the Doctor, Jamie, particularly the angry commander. The siege will initially be sneaky, involving a mysterious disease or cybermats or both. And things will escalate to a full-blown invasion, which will be thwarted remarkably easily. The wheel in space has all these in spades. In fact, it may be the most generic based under siege out there. There's nothing particularly challenging going on. It's like an old cardigan of a story, warm, predictable, and familiar, and I love it. I have still no idea what the Cybermen's plan was. It involves stars going Nova and Meteor Storms for reasons? But it introduced Zoe, for which we should be eternally grateful. Adam James also gives it three stars and says, Fun fact, if you currently own a copy of this novel, <laughs> which I do, it's probably worth at least $80. Most of the copies were burned in the warehouse fire back in 1988, so getting your copy on a, uh, hands on a copy of The Wheel in Space can be pricey. Not so fun fact, the story is pretty garbage. 
<laughs> in the Wayland space, we find the Cybermen plotting their most devious schemes yet. They're going to plunder Earth's precious minerals, but first they have to take control over the human space base, and then they're going to create a supernova to um, create a meteor shower that will uh, hurt people. <laughs> Ultimately, it's the most complicated of idiot evil plots, considering the mighty Cybermen could just, you know, go to Earth directly without bothering with the wheel in space. Just remember, just because the book is expensive doesn't mean it's good. <laughs> and finally, Anand Sundar, he's back again, proves he's still confused by the concept of Doctor Who by giving it four stars and saying, another Cybermen book, but this time set in outer space. The Doctor must uncover the mystery of a huge space station manned by the Cybermen. A good read. <laughs> okay. Yeah, we love yes. Anand Sundar because he doesn't understand the concept of Doctor Who. He thinks it's uh, unexplained mysteries. <laughs> now, Dalton could not be here tonight, but he did send us this audio postcard to tell us what he thought of the book. Yay, Dalton. Yeah, so I'm going to play it for you if I can get it to play. Hello fellow time travelers. That's Tony's line guys, but this is Dalton. Hello everyone. Sorry I wasn't able to make it to Chicago TARDIS. I am currently working my regular job. Um, love you guys. miss you guys. Wish I could be there. Hopefully next year I will be able to make it. Um, so here's just what I have to say about Wheel in Space. Tony gave us a copy that did not have the cover. It did not have the contents, so this one really was kind of a surprise for me. Um, I was not expecting it to be a Cyberman story, but it ended up being really interesting, really fun. Um, even though it is kind of the formulaic base under siege type story, this one does have like a slow start and a slow build, um, and the suspense really helped bring me in. Like I'm sure Tony already talked about, because I've looked over his notes that he has, um, this one does suffer from kind of the introduction of a million characters, it seems, all at the same time, some of which I mixed up, as usual. The Doctor and Jamie are... Sus uh, everyone is suspicious of them. They're worried that, of course, whatever is going on is caused by them, and yet again, they have to deny it and make a case for themselves. And, of course, eventually, they are proven to be uh, helpful and trying to solve the problem. I did not foresee really Zoe being a new companion necessarily until I got really to the end of the book. I did like her as a character. Um, whenever Jamie kind of gets introduced to her initially, I felt like she she was one of the kind of the key people. She felt like she was someone that had more to do, more to say. She played a bigger part than a lot of the other folks. As far as the whole plot with uh, Cybermen coming to Earth to mine its minerals, steal its minerals, or um, don't quite get that, I don't really understand why they would uh, feel the need to take over the, the, the space station in the first place if they could just as easily just go to Earth themselves, um, which again is something that has been echoed in other reviews and probably talked about as well by the other panelists. So that was a little confusing. I also didn't understand how nobody from this time period has ever heard of the Cybermen, considering that they had already invaded Earth in the past. If we think of this as linear time, 
yeah, so I don't understand that. As far as the writing goes in this book, I think Taryn Sticks does a pretty good job of, of fleshing things out when and where he can. Some of the plot itself is just the problem. I, I did, like I said earlier, I liked a lot of the suspense in it. The beginning, I did not see the Cybermen as being the, the, the big bad, the quote-unquote monster that they're fighting in this. I'm excited to see where Zoe goes as a companion. I think that she already has a lot of good chemistry with Jamie and with the Doctor. So I think that uh, coming up stories will hopefully keep her as interesting as she was in this book. Hopefully she won't fall flat or just become a damsel in distress like a lot of the female companions have been doing. So fingers crossed about that. My rating for this book on a scale of one to five stars, I would probably sit at like a 3.75. The story itself uh, is kind of formulaic, but again, there were enough elements for me as a reader to keep me interested and keep me guessing. I didn't really pick up on a whole lot of other themes that maybe we have picked up on in the past uh, within the reading, but... Uh, you know, not everything has to have subtext or a deeper level to it. Sometimes it really is just a simple kind of adventure story. And if I was a kid reading this, I, w I would enjoy it. So 3.75 from me. Um, thanks for your time, guys. I hope everyone's having fun at the convention. Thank you to our Patreon subscribers for keeping us on the virtual air. Um, and thank you, Tony, for allowing me to record this for you guys, uh, even though I can't be there in person. So thank you, Dalton. So he said 3.75. Um, Allison, what would you give it out of five? I'd go with 1.5, which once again is not that harsh for me. <laughs> no, it isn't. Uh, but yeah, Dalton on the other ends of the, the opposite ends of the spectrum there. Once again, I think it probably suffers unfairly the fact that I'm really tired of Terrence Dick's novelizations. <laughs> and really tired of Base Under Siege. Yeah, yeah. And really tired of Terrence Dick's and others not being able to novelize Trout and Doctor very effectively with a good sense of character. And if I'd read them a different sequence, once again, maybe I wouldn't be quite so weary of all of those things. I thought the, and I, my rating would have been much higher if it had been more like the last one, where yes, the plot's very complicated, but you know, in writing 60s adventure serials, uh, you know, the writers are, were not necessarily anticipating our modern pedanticism of going back over the plots and critiquing their, um, their uh, modern utility or whether or not they mm -hmm. make sense. I think that if we had had in the novelization the equivalent of the great soundscape that Trey was talking about, my rating would have been much higher. But we oh, kept yeah. building towards some tension that then just sort of all fizzled and flattened and build a bit more and then nothing ever really paid off, but it made me interested in the next stories. Okay. So. Well, I, I, I do have some good news for you. You're about to have a break from Dick's. And I, I'm like sorry it or about not, the, apparently so. <laughs> sorry how that came out. No, you're not. You're not. Go to season six, but then when we start getting to the season yeah. seven, we kind of get into the Renaissance. Well, it's, it's the original yes. when Denzel was at the beginning of his also, career and doing really great stuff. 1988 yeah, publication date. This is one of the later ones we've read. Right. He's yeah. also getting tired of writing yes, this. Yes, that's what I was going to say. That's exactly it. And that's what I was. This is next to Certainly. last one, in fact. Because you, you, we've got two that are set in season six, but when we get to the third Doctor stuff, which is you know a couple months from now, um, that's where he's at the beginning. 
And I think you may see mm-hmm. brand new a, a real difference. Yes. <laughs> well, yeah, no more. It's exciting to him to be writing right, this. Yeah. And it's also the era of TV I gotta pay the mortgage. You and exciting dicks. Yes. Dicks like you've never editor? seen before. Huh? Wasn't Terrence Dix the script editor for Burt Reeves? Yes. He was. Yes. Yeah. So he, and that's part his... of the reason why he got the job. Yeah. So yeah, thank yeah, God yeah. for it. If, yeah, if, if we'd gotten a worse, oh, oh, we gotten a worse script editor for that era, God only knows where the target uh, range would have been. Trey, what would you give this out of five stars? Three. And that's using my rating system of how it works as a novelization. And, I, and this one really, really struggles. Um... Other piece of trivia, it's the last one to use the Leon logo. It is indeed. Um, but I remember one of the things I think Terrence does well is he makes me like even the minor characters. Right. And, you know, I just go back to, like, reading this as a kid, you know, in middle school and thinking, oh, this character, Jenna died, you know, yeah. and, and being really bummed out by that. And I so I think that is testament to his ability to be very efficient with prose and being... So I think when he's doing his character stuff, um, it's it's there. So I think, again, do I rate this as a, how well he adapts what was on screen? Then I'm inclined to be more generous. If I'm looking at the story itself, then I'm going to be more critical. So kind of like halfway between the three, I give it three stars. Okay. And I think that's why I ended up giving it a two. Because... I've seen Dix at his best, and we've all seen Dix at his best when he's confronted with a script that doesn't make a lot of sense like this one does, (laughs) and manages to somehow pull a rabbit out of a hat and actually make it better, or explain something, or make something work. I'm thinking ahead to Face of Evil, which has us, you know, with a big Tom Baker face (laughs) carved into a mountain, and you don't understand why it's there, because he's been on Earth and with Sarah Jane that whole time, and there's one line that says, oh, but he nipped out during the the events of Robot, and it's like, perfect. That's the sort of dicks that I want. Oh, God, that came out wrong, too. But (laughs) I want want that dicks in this book. I want him actually giving that sort of explanation. Yes. Yeah, I might as well. Uh, But yeah, that's why I would give this two and a half stars. So It got better as you talked about it. It went from two to two and a half. Oh, did it? So yes. you oh, enjoyed it more the oh, more you talked about well, it. The more probably, you about I probably meant to say two and a half the whole time. But anyway, so thank you guys. And thank you, fellow time travelers, for giving us your valuable time. Next time we'll be kicking off our own sixth season of the podcast with our discussion of Ian Martyr's novelization of The Dominators. Ooh. In the meantime, if you've liked what you've heard here, like us on Facebook at Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast, all in words with no spaces. Visit our still supreme, uh, pristine subreddit at reddit.com forward slash r forward slash dwtargetbc. Watch our videos on YouTube. Uh, follow us on Twitter. We're at dwtargetbc. Or subscribe to us via the podcast provider of your choice. We are on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and TuneIn. We are not on Podbean. We will never be on Podbean. Screw Podbean. (laughs) It's never going to happen. So forget about Podbean. Thank you. If all else fails you, I time that to the music too, amazingly. (laughs) If all else fails you, email us at dwtargetbc at gmail.com. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you, Chicago TARDIS, and enjoy your travels. Bye-bye. Bye.
fellow time travelers, for your valuable time. It's not playing back, so let me say that again. All right. This is this is the way the sausage is made in podcasts, folks. Every once in a while you get this happening. So we're going to pretend we I didn't say anything. We went from Dick's sausage. We went from... See, now I'm going to have to leave that in. All right. So, uh, 